If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up. Acts chapter 27. Uh, I know I say this all the time, but probably one of my favorite spots in Scripture. Let's, uh, let's read it together. <clears throat> it begins, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. So entering a ship of Adramantium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary and when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, the city of Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. Now when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. And passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lycia. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship, than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. Now when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, and putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a, temp- a tempestuous headwind arose, called the Euroclidon. Now, so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. And when they had taken it on board, they, they used cables to undergird the ship, fearing lest she should run aground on the Sirtis Sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after a long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. But now I urge you, take heart. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God, and it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now when the fourteenth night had come, and we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. They took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And we had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. And fearing lest we would run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, You cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day 
You have waited and continued without food, eating nothing. So I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with the beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. So they let go the anchors, left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail into the wind and made for shore. Striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the prow stuck fast. It remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land and the rest. Some on boards, some on parts of the ship. So it was, they all escaped safely to land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank You for the truth of Your Word, God, and for what Your Word declares to us, Lord. And even as we take a look at this shipwreck, and maybe some of us this morning are feeling a little shipwrecked, God, I pray that we would that we would draw encouragement from Your Word, Lord, that Your Spirit would provide for us nourishment from the pages of Scripture that we might grow and that we may be established in Your truth and in Your way. We give You praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you ever had one of those days? I know you had, Noe. We have got to have had one of those days. Let's face it. It reminds me of a story when I read this. It always reminds me of a story. I will keep the innocent unnamed. But one of the fellows on this trip was Jason. (laughs) We were going fishing. And we went to Magic Reservoir and the water was pretty low. And as we were pulling the boat down to the dock, for some reason... Jason decided he would turn around right at the edge of the water. Now, as soon as we began to get close to the edge of the water, his giant plumbing truck began to sink because it was mushy mud. So he began to turn to try to get out of it, but no, it was buried. Both axles down to the ground, hopelessly stuck. In the mud. But let's face it, we're there to do some fishing, and the boat was still on the back of the truck. We decided that the the boat was weighing down the truck too much, so we needed to take the boat off. So we were able to get the trailer close enough to the water that we could slide the boat into the water. But as the boat was sliding into the water, about the moment that it hit the water, I remembered the plug is not. In the boat. So as the boat began to float away on the water, I looked over at Jason and said, There's no plug! The plug's not in the boat. It's in the glove box. He said, It's okay. We're right here on the side. We'll get the plug right in. It had a rope tied to the, to the front of the boat, so the boat was swinging around. And as the boat was swinging around toward us, we watched the rope go... And Jason was left holding a rope. No boat. With no plug in it. The wind began to blow. And the boat was sailing off without any of us. Now, I would have thought it could have been redeemed, but my fishing pole was in the boat. So I couldn't even fish from the side. As the boat is floating away, there's that moment of panic. Like... Well, this is as bad as it can get. 
And about that time, I look over at Jason as the boat is floating away. It's cold. And he's almost to his skivvies. He's getting ready to dive in. When about that time, an old fisherman come out of his camper. And he walked over and he saw the boat. He saw our predicament. And he said, what are you doing, son? And Jason said, I got to go get it. He's getting ready to dive in. And the old fisherman said, it's going to blow right over there to the other side. You just walk around this little finger here and you can catch it right over there when it comes up against the shore. Sure enough, it blew right up against the other side. He walked around, jumped in the sinking boat. Yes, the plug was still not in. And now it was a little lower in the water. And he drove it over to the dock and we put it on the dock and watched it moment by moment get lower and lower because we needed the plug, which was in the truck, stuck in the mud. So that fisherman, he got in his truck, he came around to the front, he hooked up with his, with his camper and all to Jason's truck, pulled him out of the mud, we backed down into the dock right before the boat completely submerged, pulled it up onto the dock, let all the water drain, put the plug in, and still went fishing. But it was a crazy day. And you're never quite sure how that was all going to pan out. We look at Paul, and Paul was, has been in prison for two years. And finally, the time comes, they're going to ship him off to Rome. And so they get in a boat, the scripture tells us, it lays out for us how his day begins. And it looks pretty good in the beginning, don't it? In verse 1 it says, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. Now here's what the Augustan Regiment. You've heard of Caesar Augustus? The, the August one? That's uh, Octavian, I believe, is the first one that, that gets the title of Augustus. And the title was to prescribe to him worship. In essence, being the august one meant that you were to be worshipped. And so this is the regiment that would be around the leaders in Rome who were responsible for doing whatever they wanted done. It doesn't necessarily mean that Julius was from Nero, but it doesn't mean he wasn't. Every governor had an Augustan Regiment, a regiment that was there to do their bidding and take care of them. So, but because Julius has taken him to Nero, I think it's a good reason to think that that's where Julius was from. He had come, he had heard, they had called for him that they might send Paul. Now he was there to take him. But look what the scripture tells us about him. It says, so entering a ship of Adramantium, we put to sea, meaning to sail on the coast of Asia... With Aristarchus of Macedonian of Thessalonica with us. You remember Aristarchus. He's been mentioned before in the book of Acts. He, he came with Paul back to Jerusalem when all the trouble started. He's with Paul now on this crazy shipwreck adventure. You know, reminds me of Gilligan all over again. You know, they are taking a nice little trip. It just doesn't turn out that way. And as they're gathered together, Aristarchus is with them. We know the scripture says that Aristarchus was with us. We know who's writing Acts, right? Luke is writing Acts. Paul's there and Aristarchus. So we at least have those three guys, friends of Paul, that are gathered together. And it says, uh, And the next day they landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him liberty, so that he could see his friends and receive care. Now that means when they landed at Sidon, Julius let him off the ship. How often do you think that happened? Well, Paul, go ahead. You can have leave, even though you're a prisoner. <laughs> you think they'd let the other prisoners out? I doubt it. Seeing as how they were going to kill him when the ship was going down. But Julius was kind, the scripture said to Paul. Kind to Paul. Everything has the beginnings of a great day, great period of time. The sailing's been a little bit difficult, but we see in, in God's providence that the Lord has provided a centurion who is kind everywhere. By the way, in the pages of Scripture, centurions are always viewed in a good light. They're good guys. And so here he is, Julius. He's taking care of Paul, lets him go to visit the church at Sidon. 
In verse 4 it says, And when we put out to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. Uh, it's starting to get stormy. In the Mediterranean Ocean, you do not want to be anywhere near it as you enter into the winter months. And we'll see in a moment, they're entering into the winter months. It says, Now, when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. And I bet the Alexandrians were happy about that. See, you're living under Roman rule. And so when Julius lands at the port there, Myra, he looks around and says, Now, we're, who's, who's going to Italy? Oh, you are. Well, you are now a prison vessel. I'm going to bring all my soldiers onto your boat, and I'm going to bring all these prisoners, and you are going to take them with us to Italy. And you don't get to argue about it. You just do it. The, Rome, the Romans took it, and they got on this Egyptian ship. But there's a few things you got to know about it. A typical grain freighter from Egypt was about 140 feet long and 36 feet wide. It's a big boat. It was sturdy, but in high seas, it was not good. You see, these grain freighters, they could not sail into a headwind at all. They could not handle a headwind. They had two oars instead of a rudder, one on either side, and one giant mainsail in the middle. Filled with grain and loaded up, it says... In verse 7, when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus, the wind not only, or the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon and passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. Now that seems like a good place to stay, don't it? Why do you think they called it Fair Havens? It was a nice, quiet town. And that was a problem for all those soldiers. They pull into Fair Havens. They realize it's getting to be late. Winter's coming on. But this place is a small town. There's no movie theater. There's no mall. There's no place to hang out. There's nothing to do for all the months that we're going to be stuck here. Uh, this is probably not a great place for us to be. At least that's the way they looked at it. Paul told him in verse 9, Now when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. Paul advised them. What was Paul again? Prisoner. When's the last time you knew a prison officials taking the advice of a prisoner? Every day, right? All the time? All the time. I don't know if they're going to take his advice. But I want you to see what verse 9 told us. Verse 9 told us that it was dangerous because it was after the fast. You see the word fast with a definite article before it. It's not just a fast, which would be an indefinite article. It is the fast. Definite article talking about one fast. There was one fast that the children of Israel were always required to participate in, and that was on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, which means we are now entering into winter. Bad time to be sailing. That's how we get the timing. The fast was over it was after the days of the fast and so we find ourselves in a place where they probably should not be sailing so paul says men i perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss not only the cargo the ship but our lives it's too dangerous right now nevertheless the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship your bibles may say the pilot and the captain uh, it's the same thing. Helmsman, owner, the captain was the owner, and the helmsman or the or uh, what's the same as the pilot, the guy who was taking care of the direction of the ship. They both said to the centurion, hey, we can make it. It says, because the harbor was not suitable to winter in. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't stay there. It means it was boring. There was not a lot of things to do, and they were going to be there several months. So the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix. Phoenix, the harbor of Crete, was about 40 miles away. So you would probably think, oh, hey, all we got to do is make it 40 miles. And we should be able to do that. Maybe. So that's the plan. We're going to go 40 miles toward the southwest and the northwest and winter there. 
So when the south wind blew softly, have you ever been there? Have you ever been on, a, on the cusp of a decision and somewhere inside of you was this voice of Paul saying, bad idea, bad idea, bad idea? But you come outside and you see the soft wind blow. And you say, it's perfect time to, to just go for it. We should just go for it. It's a soft wind, easy sail. Let's go. And so the soft wind enticed them. The soft wind enticed them and they decided to begin to sail. It says they sailed close to Crete. So they're getting close to the 40 miles where they want to go. And about that time, not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose. The word for tempestuous is the word tufonicos. You ever heard of a, a hurricane? Same word. Typhoon. That's where we get the word from. A typhoon. Violent headwind. Remember which way I told you that ship couldn't sail? Which way? Into a headwind, right? So there's a headwind. They're trying to get into port 40 miles away. They're close. And the wind starts blowing. Now they can't go. They can't go forward into the headwind. In fact, it says that the wind was called a Euroclidon, a nor'eastern. Heavy, crazy, hard wind starts blowing. It says, so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Do you guys know what that means in sailing terms? Nobody's steering. They're just letting it go. You ever been on a ship that's doing that? Me neither. Do you ever want to be on a ship doing that? This does not sound good. Closest experience I have, I was on the Iwo Jima Gator Freighter when I was in the Marine Corps. And we were in the Atlantic doing a blue water, green water workup. We we sailed down uh, to Haiti. There was word that Haiti was going to have a coup. And so they sent the Marines offshore of Haiti just in case it took place. So we got in this uh, Gator Freighter, the Iwo Jima, and it was pretty cool. You'd go up on the top and and walk around on the top. Uh, A Gator Freighter is a a helicopter carrier. So it's not as big as a... And it's square because it's where they launched them crazy boats out of, you know, in World War II that landed on the beach. Those amphibious landings that the Marine Corps was famous for. I don't know why they make them square like that, but they did. And so we're on the Atlantic, and and the news comes to all of us in the bunks that, that there's a storm coming. Oh, there's a storm coming. You may you heard the phrase, batten down the hatches? That means you don't get to go outside no more. They close you inside. And we we were hanging out inside, and it seemed okay, but pretty soon you notice. Man, you're really rocking a lot. And then you can't hardly walk across the room at all because you're tilting one side and the other side. And so you decide to, you know what, I think I'm just going to go to bed. So you climb up in a rack. Now, I was in the top bunk, and I lasted up there almost seven seconds. So I almost had a perfect ride. But then you come tumbling off, and you realize, I'm going to have to strap myself in. To stay in the rack. About that time, 200 Marines in the squad bay, I don't know how many, but they began to gather around trash cans and make a horrible sound that you never want to hear, accompanied with a horrible smell that you don't want to hear. For about two days, we tossed like that. Hold on to the rack. Try not to pay attention to what's going on with all those fellows that are huddled. And ride out the storm. Now, in this case, in that case, we got motor. We're able to run, turn, take care of of making the best ride possible. In this case, they could do nothing. They were tossed every which way. It would be like riding a Bronco for 14 days straight. No idea where it's turning, where it's bucking, where it's rolling, where it's twisting. Been a wild ride, man. These guys are just letting this ship roll. It says they were, they were, uh, afraid that they were gonna run aground at Sirtis Sands. That's the sandbars right off of North Africa. 
So if you look at, at, at a map, you'll see where Crete is in North Africa, and you'll notice that they're not close anymore. They were close, but they're not close anymore. And because they were exceedingly tempest-tossed, they lightened the ship. They tossed cargo. Cargo is anything that was not grain or furniture. In a minute, they're going to throw the furniture, but they haven't thrown the furniture yet. And on the third day, now it's three days of this tossing, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. That was all the furniture. That was all the beds, the chairs, the desks, the whatever they may have had on that boat. They chucked it all over. Trying to lighten the ship. Trying to make it so it would be a little bit easier on them to go on. In verse 20 it says, Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. So now they lost count. Tossed, twisted, jacked up in the wind. Storm is going crazy. They haven't seen the sun or the stars. They haven't eaten. And it says, no small tempest. You see that? That's Bible speak for it was a wild and woolly storm. No small tempest. This was blowing hard. All hope that we would be saved was lost. All hope. And everyone had finally given up. So now they're pretty sure they're all dead. We're going to die. We're going to die. Just sitting around. But I remind you in Acts 23 verse 11. The Lord appeared to Paul and listen to what he said to him. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Are you aware that God has never promised us smooth sailing the whole trip? He has not said it's going to be easy. Sometimes as we serve Christ, there's going to be storms, tempests will be tossed. Hardships will take place. Things will break down. But there will also be times of peace and assurance and fruitfulness. And most of all, the sustaining presence of God in the midst of it all. Christ warned His disciples that they were going to face trials. That they were going to go through hard times. But He always assured them He would be with them. Remember when the disciples... Their first time they went out on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus and He fell asleep on a boat. And they're rowing, right? And they get out there about halfway across the sea. Now Jesus had told them, we need to go to the other side. But they get about halfway and a crazy storm comes up. Crazy storm comes up. And the disciples who are fishermen are all pretty sure they're all going to die. They go wake up Jesus and say, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? Have you ever felt that way? You ever been caught up in a storm or a season or a time in your life and you look at the Lord and you say, Lord, don't you care? I'm perishing. And so they wake Jesus up and Jesus comes up on top of the the boat there and He says, peace be still. And it says, He rebuked the wind and the wind and the waves died down and the Water became calm. Not like slowly, like boom, calm. And the disciples were all blown away. Who is this guy who can, who can command the wind and the waves to obey him? It's the Son of God. Jesus would say, didn't I tell you we're going to the other side? I didn't say we were going to the middle to perish in the waves. I said... We're going to the other side. And they were there. Jesus was with them, even in the storm. Even in the storm, He was there. And part of the the difficulty, the struggle that we have in understanding that, we'll kind of build on in just a minute. But, But the next time, the important thing is the next time Jesus tells the disciples to go across to the other side... And he said, I'm going to go somewhere to pray. Now he's not with them physically. He's up on a mountaintop praying. And the the Bible says that the disciples around the middle of the night, they're out there rowing the boat and the storm comes up and it's going like crazy. But what are they doing this time? They're just rowing. How come they're rowing? How come they're not panicking? And Jesus said, we're supposed to go to the other side. 
So we just got to keep rowing. What happened that night in the middle of the storm? You remember? They're rowing and all of a sudden it says they look and they saw someone doing what? Walking on water. And Jesus came to them in the storm and carried them through. We have the sustaining presence of God all the time in the storms when our lives are a little bit shipwrecked. When we have crazy days, they just keep spiraling out of control. And that was something that Paul knew all too well. I just really want you to see this as we take a look here at verse 21. It says, But after a long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them. And he said he could not restrain himself. He tried not to say anything. It just proves that Paul's a man. He had to say, I told you not to go. I told you this was a bad idea. Do you ever find yourself not able not to say that? The good thing about Paul is he doesn't dwell on it. Look, he says, men, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster or loss. But immediately he says, but now I urge you, take heart. That means be of good cheer. Be encouraged. For there will be no loss of life among you. Nobody's going to die. But we're going to lose the ship, he says. Only the ship. While huge waves were tearing apart the ship and destroying the, the will of the men there on the boat, Paul's soul was calm. Like he's on a windless pond. Just hanging out. Because he was anchored to something that the rest of them couldn't see. In the, in the tempestuous seasons you find yourself in, being tossed about by the wind, what are you anchored to? Where is your anchor set? Look at verse 23. Paul's going to tell us. He says, For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Look, the first thing we see is he's anchored in God's presence. He's saying, hey, look, an angel of God appeared to me. An angel of God stood beside me. That's, that's not the first time that this had happened for Paul. In Acts chapter 18, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. What do we call that? A dream, right? A night vision. That's what I call it. Night vision, sleeping. And the Lord said, Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. Paul was discouraged, and the Lord said, You hang in there. I'm with you. He was anchored to God's presence. 2 Timothy chapter 4, 16 and 17. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. He said, At my first defense, no one stood with me. Have you ever had to stand all alone? Nobody there, all your friends bailed out on you. You look around for somebody to, to stand there with you and nobody is there to stand. But he said, no one stood with me, all forsook me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Paul was anchored to the presence of God. Look, it's too late to get anchored to the presence of God in the middle of the crazy storm. You practice being anchored in the presence of God by spending time in God's presence every day. Not Sunday only. You spend time in God's presence every day. When we're anchored into God's presence, when we find ourselves connected to God, we'll display the kind of courage that we read about in the middle of the storm. We'll display the kind of courage that we see on the pages of Scripture. And when we are anchored to God's presence, our presence will encourage others. Isn't that what Paul does? Take courage, guys. It's going to be okay. Nobody's going to die. But the second thing that he's anchored, not only into the presence of God, but into his position with God. Look to what he says in verse 23. For there stood by me this night an angel of... The God, what's the next phrase? To whom I belong. 
whom I belong. The God to whom I belong. I belong to Him. I belong to the Lord God Almighty. How do you belong to God? Well, just look to the pages of Scripture. What do they tell us? You belong to God like a bride belongs to the bridegroom. In the Song of Solomon, doesn't the Lord declare, I am my beloved's and He is mine? His banner over me is love. Just like in Ephesians chapter 5, when it compares a marital relationship to what? Paul says, listen, I speak a mystery concerning Christ and the church. Our relationship to God is like a bride with the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. He's the one who's going to take care of us. We belong to Him. We belong to Him like a bride to the bridegroom. How about like a sheep to the shepherd? Jesus would declare in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by them. And as my Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. How do I belong to God? Where's my position with God? My position to be found in Christ Jesus is just like a position of a sheep to the shepherd. He watches over. The Lord is my shepherd. What's the next part? I shall not want. Does that mean God will take care of me? Paul was anchored in his position in Christ, in God. It's also like a child and his father. How many times in the scripture does it say, give reference that we can come before with boldness before God, declaring unto him, Abba, Daddy, Daddy. Alan Redpath had two daughters. And one day he's up in the, in the second story and he's, he's studying up there and mama finished dinner. So she told the two little girls, go get your dad for dinner. Now, they, the oldest girl was much faster than the younger girl, and she got there first. And you know how it is with olders and youngers, right? We, we have at least one of each here, olders and younger siblings. She got up there and told her father, dinner's ready. And then about that time, she turned around and her little sister was coming up. And she said to her little sister, I got here first. Daddy's all mine. And the little girl's got a little tear in her eye. She's sad she didn't win. And Alan Redpath saw her and he took the opportunity. He sat down and he gathered her to himself and he set her on his knee and he wiped away her tear. And she looked to her older sister and said, But I am all daddies. It's a great illustration of what it is, the relationship between a child and a father. Paul was anchored in his position in God, in Christ Jesus. That he watches over us like a shepherd over his sheep, like a groom, bridegroom over the bride. Or like a father watches over his children. Man, that anchored him. That anchored him so that he could have the understanding that God owns me to the God to whom I belong. I am his lock, stock, and barrel. That's what Paul is declaring. So he was able to stand tall in the midst of the crazy storm. But that's not all he's anchored to. What else is he anchored to? He's anchored to the God whom I serve. Verse 23 again. Not only to the God to whom I belong, but and whom I serve. I serve Him. I serve Him. A long time before that, there was another fellow who was on a ship where the ship got tossed. His name was Jonah. He serves as an example of one who is not serving God. He was not serving God. He's going the opposite way. And because he was going an opposite way, was he, as, was he an example to the other sailors there? Was he a, a comfort to them? His biggest hope was, throw me over so I can drown and die. That's what Jonah was looking for. But because Paul served the Lord his God with his heart and soul, because he understood his place in service to God, then he's anchored to God, to his presence, to his position, and he becomes a witness to those who are around him, to those who are watching. 
all those who are Christ, who consciously serve Him, always will experience sustaining assurance. We think sometimes we serve to give something back, but in reality, we serve so that God can empower us further, so that God can meet us, so that God can encourage us. But you see, the Scripture goes on in verse 24. He says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, the fourth part of the anchoring, for I believe God. He was anchored to the promises of God. I believe God, guys. I believe God. Just like He told me it's going to be. I believe Him. I trust Him. I'm holding on to Him. I'm holding on to His Word. What His Word declares. What His Word lays out for me. In Acts chapter 20. 27 verse 24 again do not be afraid paul you must be brought before caesar and indeed god has granted to you all those who sail with you look paul said man i believe god do you believe god do you hold fast to his promises to his promises that he will be with you that he will strengthen you that he'll carry you that he'll guide you through and carry you over These are the things Paul was anchored to that sustained him so that he could stand a prisoner on a prison ship and get everybody's attention. Why would they listen to him? Well, they don't initially. Look what it says in verse 27. Now, when the 14th night has come, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that we were drawing near some land. So they took soundings. They found it to be 20 fathoms. They got a little farther. They took soundings again. Found it to be 15. They had moved from 120 feet to 90. The depth. And so fearing that they would run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. You hear the desperation? Oh, it's, you want to be a, you ever been on a ship in the middle of the night? There's no lights out there. You know that, right? Except the stars, but there hadn't been sun or stars for many days, the Bible tells us. It was pitch black and dark out there, and they wanted daylight, man. They wanted daylight so they could see. Where's the land? You don't want to jump off a boat in the middle of the night and swim to the way you hope is land, do you? So they're praying for day to come, and the sailors were seeking to escape the ship. So they let down the skiff. They put down that, that one escape raft. They laid the skiff down under the pretense. Hey, we're going to go put anchors over on the prow. We're going, to, we're going to anchor it down some more. But what they really intended to do was to escape. So Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Look what the soldiers did. They cut the rope to the skiff and let it go. They cut the rope to the skiff. They cut the rope to the to the the emergency escape vehicle, the jettison pod, the things that they were going to ride to safety. They cut it away. They tossed it out. Because Paul said, unless you stay on the ship, you can't be saved. So they decided they didn't need that. They're listening to a prisoner. They're following his example. They're learning to see the power of God flowing through a man of God who is being used by God in a great way. So Paul offers encouragement in verse 33. It says, as the day was about to dawn, Paul said, let's eat. Anybody hungry? I'm kind of hungry. I forgot to eat breakfast this morning. It happens occasionally. And uh, so I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I get what this Paul saying. Let's eat. 14 days. No food. Why hadn't they eaten for 14 days? You ever try to eat on a boat that is flipping backwards, sideways? Anybody been on a crazy fishing trip out on the deep sea fishing? Where you spend the whole trip going out to the spot you're going to fish, chumming? Not the way you want to chum. And somebody comes up to you and says, do you want something to eat? No. 
In fact, I don't even want to see food. Get away from me. Even looking at you makes me want to be sick. 14 days like this. Look what Paul says. Hey, let's eat. Today, let's eat. He says in verse 34, Therefore I urge you, take nourishment. It's for your survival. You're about to have to swim. You're going to want something to eat. Better eat something. Not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. I take that to mean they were all bald men on the ship. Probably not. The scripture is telling us, look, you're going to be okay. Everybody's going to make it all right. Everyone is going to be safe. So what does he do? He gives them an example. He takes a loaf of bread. He breaks it. He prays, Lord, bless this food that we're about to eat. And he begins to eat. And all the guys look at him and and they decide to eat too. They take courage by watching a man of God standing anchored in the presence of God and the position of God. Standing there before them, holding to the promises of God. And so they begin to eat as well. They all took courage and took food themselves. And in all, there were 276 persons. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and they threw all the wheat to the sea. Now they threw everything off. Nothing left. Just a shell of the ship. And when it was day, the sun's the rest of the way up. They can see. They see where the land is. They didn't recognize the land, but they observed a bay and a beach on the which they planned to run the ship if possible. So they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea. You can picture it. They walk up and they just cut the ropes. How do you leave anchors in the sea? They didn't lift them all the way out the water and untie them and drop them in the water. They come running up and they start cutting the ropes. We're going to make a push to the shore. We're going to make a push to try to make it there. And it says, and they left the anchors in the sea and loosed the rudder ropes. Now the rudders, ropes, two of them, they were them oars on the side. So they dropped them out. They get rid of any, anything that would restrain them or hold them back in any way. But striking a place, it says, they, or I'm sorry, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. And you think the stories, they're going to run it on the beach and everybody can get off. Crazy ride. Nope, it's not quite done yet. They they come to a point where the two seas met and they ran aground early. And they're stuck on the rocks. And the rocks are beaten and tearing the boat apart. The ship is beginning to fall apart. And the soldiers looking around thinking, well, let's kill the prisoners. So you, the day can always get worse. That's the moral of the story. The day can always get worse, but there was Julius the centurion to say, no, all you guys who can swim, get in the water. So you can picture them, right? Diving over to the sides, into the water, making a swim for the beach. All the guys who could swim implies that there were also guys who what? Couldn't swim. You know, I have met more people in Idaho who cannot swim than anywhere on the face of the earth. How many of you guys can't swim? Ah, you'd be in trouble, wouldn't you? That's a scary place to be, isn't it? Crazy storm, can't swim, and your first surfing lesson is about to take place. Isn't that what the Bible's telling us is going to happen? Look what it says. And so... The centurion wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, commanded that those who could swim jump overboard and get to land, and the rest of them, some on, what's it say? Boards. Boards that are in where? The surf. We call them what? Thank you. First mention of surfboarding in the Bible. Right here. They are riding boards in the surf to the shore. And so they, they're on boards, on parts of the ship, on anything that will float. What does it say? And so it was that they, what's that next little word? All escaped safely to land. All. How is it that they all got there? Listen, it's important for us to understand something. We are objective oriented. What do I mean? God is process-oriented. We're objective-oriented. We say, God said, I'm supposed to get to Rome. Let's get to Rome. Let's go. I need to be in Rome. i got to get to Rome. Let's get to Rome. It's the objective. Get to Rome. 
But God is process oriented. He cares how you get there. And the character that He develops in your life on the way matters to God. And He does great and awesome things when we allow Him. Sometimes those storms are for us. Sometimes those storms are for others who are watching. But always God is working out His purpose. Listen, as we have opportunity this morning to come before the Lord's table, I just wanted you to have a a, a moment to meditate on what we see here in Acts chapter 27. Into what are you anchored? If you want to be able to respond like Paul in the midst of your storm or upon your shipwreck, then you've got to be anchored. Paul was anchored to the presence of God. He is with you. An angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me. He is with you, God's presence. You are His possession. You are God's possession. To whom I belong. The God to whom I belong. You are to be anchored through service to God. The God, not only to whom I belong, but whom I serve. And then he says, so keep up your courage, men, and have faith, for I believe God. He was anchored to the promises of God, to his faith in God. If we make that that choice to be anchored in that way, then we, like Paul, will survive the shipwreck. You'll survive the embarrassment of trying to swim across the water in your underwear. If you listen to the old fisherman who says, just going to float to the other side. It's going to be okay. Sometimes we got to be able to hear God's direction when God gives His direction. And it's too late to think about, maybe I should be spending time with God in the middle of that. Now is the time. Today is the day. Amen? As we prepare our hearts for communion, I'll have the worship team come up. And I just would like you to to consider those things. We'll have prayer counselors available up front. Here's how we go with communion. We're going to share a word of worship. And as we worship, I just invite you, as the Lord prepares your heart for it, come forward. Communion is on the table before you. You are welcome to come up. Take communion here at the table. Take it back to your seat. Take it up here at the altar in prayer, in any way that the Lord would lead you. And then as we conclude the song of worship, we'll conclude our time of communion and we'll close out this morning's service. We are so thankful for all that God has done. And I pray that you are as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would truly see where our anchor is. God, we need to be anchored into you, to your presence, into our position with You, Lord God, into a a place of service, holding on to the promises of God. God, You're able to sustain us through any storm that we face. And this is how You did it through Paul. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we come to remember Your body broken for us and Your blood shed for the remission of sin, as we come to this place to remember and celebrate what You've given us, that we would make that choice, that decision that says, I will be anchored in Christ. And He will sustain me in the storm. Lord God, we thank You as we turn our eyes toward You in Jesus' name. Amen.